Oh yeah, that music means it is time for the 7th Avenue Project. I'm your host, Robert Polly, and today on our show, The Great Rat Massacre, Postcards of an Execution, and Other Dispatches from Old Hanoi. The historian Mike Van explores the seamy side of Southeast Asia during the days of French colonial rule. He has rummaged through the archives and unearthed tales of sex, violence, and plague that help tell the larger story of the whole colonial era, when a handful of European nations divvied up much of the globe among themselves for fun and profit. Now, those days may seem long behind us, but we are still sorting out the consequences. I mean, colonialism drew the very map that we Earthlings live in today, and don't forget that this country, too, was once a colony. Hell, colonialism still comes up in current American politics. You might have heard of that documentary film that's making the rounds right now by the conservative activist Dinesh D'Souza. It's called 2016, Obama's America, and it argues that the president's agenda is secretly driven by the anti-colonial ideology of his Kenyan father. And hence, according to D'Souza, Obama's desire to downsize American power and limit its influence around the world. Well, whatever you think of that, I think we can agree that colonialism does matter and that the old empires are still striking back. So let's hear some stories. Mike, why don't you start by introducing yourself? Sure. My name is Mike Van. I'm an associate professor, world history at Sacramento State University and uh, an expert on French colonialism, specifically on colonial Hanoi. You have a, a nickname, though. Yeah, <laughs> I've got several. Um, probably the most germane is the world's toughest French historian. And, and that's because you, you practice the arts of? I have a black belt in Brazilian jiu-jitsu, and I'm a former uh, Muay Thai kickboxing instructor. So have you ever had to use those skills on another French historian? No, no. So I guess obviously it's a fairly hollow title. Well, even though you haven't had to actually like manhandle any of your uh, colleagues in French history, I'm looking at the titles of some of the articles you've written, and it does mm-hmm. look like you handle the tough French colonial beat here. Let, let me just list a couple here. Sex and the Colonial City. Hanoi in the Time of Cholera. Fear and Loathing in French Hanoi. Of Pirates, Postcards, and Public Beheadings. White Blood on Rue of Rats, Rice, and Race, the Great Hanoi Rat Massacre. Wow. Yeah, those are me. <laughs> so uh, sex, violence, and pestilence. You know, you got you to gotta, you sell it. you got to sell it. <laughs> and these are all um, centered around what you call French Hanoi, the city in Vietnam that was under French colonial rule for, for how long? When? Officially, French Hanoi begins 1884, mm-hmm. 1885. Uh, they were there all the way to 1954. Mm-hmm. So, you know, roughly three generations, three and a half generations. Mm. That was French Indochina. Yeah. Which French also Indochina. included uh, Cambodia at times. Cambodia and Laos. And Laos. All of this was known as Indochine, though. Yeah, Indochine. Indochine. French Indochina. How did you get into this corner of French history? Initially, I was fascinated with Southeast Asia. Um, I, I tell my students, I, I decided to become a historian junior year in high school. I was out with mononucleosis for the week, stuck on the couch with a high fever. HBO, uh, back then they would show one movie over and over again. And in my fever, I watched the uh, Mel Gibson, Sigourney Weaver film, The Year of Living, Living Dangerously, over and over again. It's about Indonesia. Like, right. What is this place? You know, I'm a 16, 17-year-old kid in Honolulu. This is incredible. And I wanted to learn about this this region and began to study Southeast Asia on my own. Got to UC Santa Cruz, um, really became interested in Southeast Asia. Thought about graduate degree in, um, in Indonesian history, uh, had studied Indonesian language, but realized I'd have to also learn Dutch. <laughs> and then promptly <laughs> retreated in graduate school to an area of a little bit more linguistic familiarity, which is French history, uh-huh. Um, uh-huh. and stayed in the region. Although initially, um, when I decided I was going to do French colonial history, I went to my advisor and said that I wanted to uh, do colonial city, which is um, looking at the city as a site of colonial interactions. He asked me, what you know, what city would you like to do? And without blinking, I said, Papa Ete. 
Tahiti. Uh, <laughs> for reasons that weren't totally he, academic, yes. He took one look at his, his <laughs> blonde surfer graduate student and said, no, <laughs> you want to do that for all the wrong reasons. <laughs> and um, I said, well, you know, I, I have this deep interest in Southeast Asia. Also, the field of uh, Vietnamese history in the English language is really focused on the American War in Vietnam. Um, you know, the better books, you know, maybe start at Dien Bien Phu. Maybe if this you... is the uh, climactic yeah. battle of the French uh, war in Indochina. Yeah, yeah. The, uh, after which they got out. exited. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that's 1954. Right. I mean, very, very few books actually go back and look at the colonial period mm -hmm. when, you know, Vietnamese communism got going and Vietnamese nationalism got going. All these forces that Americans were dealing with in the 60s and 70s. So the literature is. Com uh, has historically been really skewed towards the American experience. There's very little in English on colonial Vietnam. So this was an area that I could I could make a contribution to as a graduate mm -hmm. student. Mm -hmm. um, you know, as opposed to say North Africa or West Africa, which had rather well developed um, bodies of literature on the colonial era. The French colonial era. Yeah, the French colonial era, exactly. Yeah, at various times, the French Empire has included that corner of Southeast Asia we're talking about. It included uh, a lot of West and North Africa, mm -hmm. the parts of the Caribbean. Of course, at one time, it was a big chunk of North America as well, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> a huge swath of territory yeah. from the Arctic Circle down to Louisiana. Yeah. Well, what's important to understand is there's two phases of French colonial expansion. There's the old empire primarily in the Caribbean and North America, and a failed effort in India. And that old empire goes up through the Napoleonic Wars. Um, the independence of Haiti is an important turning point there, 1804. Uh -huh. And then a new phase of French colonization that starts with the initial invasion of Algeria, 1830, 1831, and then expands across West Africa, across the Sahara, also into Southeast Asia and so forth. And that second phase is really made possible by new developments in technology in terms of maritime transportation, railways, military technology, and also medical technology, particularly combating tropical diseases. So those Frenchmen could survive in those areas. <laughs> the fragile European body could survive in areas with endemic diseases, um, wow. although mortality rates re remained incredibly high throughout the tropical colonial experience. But you know, those those factors you just uh, listed, you know, military technology, medical uh, knowledge, and so on, those are what enabled them to, to pull this off, to grab huge uh, regions around the globe. But why? Why did a relatively small country like France want to go out and grab parts of the world where there weren't necessarily great riches? I mean, the Sahara? Come on. Mm -hmm. What was going on there? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. One short answer is it looks good on a map. <laughs> Um, the the British were very happily painting large swaths of the globe pink to represent the British Empire. Why pink? I don't know. You think they would have picked a more macho <laughs> color for their empire? But traditionally, the British maps show pink for the uh, the British colonies, and the British would talk about the Cape to Cairo scheme of this racing stripe of British territory down the spine of Africa. And in the era of 19th century nationalism, the French very much get caught up in that game and want to paint a big portion of West Africa as much as possible, sort of the French blue. Um, much of that is desert. Much of that they really have no control over. But it looks good on a map. But this means sending out a lot of French boys <laughs> to die of diseases and sometimes in warfare, as you said. Or or the Foreign Legion. Or the Foreign Legion. <laughs> yes, that's true. Who, who are foreign and also... Um, are, are really forgotten by European society at that time. I mean, they are, you know, famously criminals or nobles who've lost all their money. Right, um, right. Or, um, you know, uh, poor, people who've had kids. horrible love affairs yeah, and, yeah. and go and find themselves in the Foreign Legion. So the French have this very disposable core of soldiers that they can send around the empire. And the legionnaires really do build the empire, and they are a rough-and-tumble bunch. And um, th but they're they're the ones who make the empire. So the stories yeah. about the foreign legion aren't all made up. <laughs> no, no, really. No. Yeah. Okay, okay. And, uh, a colleague of mine who's um, down at the Naval Naval Postgraduate School in in Monterey, Douglas Porch, has written a fantastic book on the French Foreign Legion, full of all kinds of amazing stories about these guys. Wow. Um, but uh, another important factor for the, the why do the French seize all this territory, um, you know, as 
any good French historian, I can figure out a way to somehow blame it on the Germans. Um, the the Germans uh, or the Prussians at the time deal the French an incredibly embarrassing defeat in 1870 in the in the Franco-Prussian War, and Bismarck actively encouraged the French to find national glory overseas. Ah. Bismarck, when he created the Second German Empire, seized Alsace-Lorraine, formerly French territory, and you know said, "Don't don't think about." finding glory by taking back Alsace-Lorraine, you know, look towards Vietnam, look towards Madagascar, look towards uh, the um, the Sahara and so forth to find your national glory. Mm. But it meant losing good beer. <laughs> it meant losing andouillette, which is uh, my, my favorite, one of my favorite dishes, which is the uh, intestines. Um, intestines. Yes. So it's, yes. it's an intestine stuffed with more intestines. Indeed, indeed, yes. And several times I've ordered it in Paris, and obviously, being American, I had the waiter say, do you know what that is? Do you really want that? <laughs> so let's um, narrow our focus to your area of specialty. You decided to concentrate on Vietnam, or what the French called Indochina or Indochine, and specifically Hanoi, right? Mm -hmm. And so all these articles I just listed a little while ago are historical stories set in Hanoi. Um, let's start with one of them. Sure. The Great rat massacre that's one of my absolute favorite pieces uh it's an incredible story and it's one of these funny things that happens to historians i'm i'm, I'm doing a dissertation on colonial hanoi a traditional urban history looking at city records how many kilometers of roads are laid are, are you there at the time are you in no hanoi? no i'm doing this in the archives in aix-en-provence oh um, yeah, my, the Colonial Archives are in Aix-en-Provence, which is you know, Cezanne's hometown. It's yeah. a delightful city in, yeah, yeah. in Provence, but I um, sat there in the archives. So you're in Aix-en-Provence in France, poring over these old documents from colonial Indochina. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, documents about 100 years old. Um, you know, again, road building, uh, lighting, a water supply. You know, this is great stuff for writing urban history. But after several months of this, it gets mind-numbingly dull. And then one day I find this document that's in, entitled Deratisation, deratification, de you know, <laughs> rat killing, <laughs> getting, getting the rats out. Say it again de in French. Deratisation. <laughs> like Homer Simpson says, they, they, they got a word for everything. <laughs> um, and okay, what, what is what is this? You know, what is what is deratification? De so I, I open it up, <laughs> and it's this story told in these documents from. Um, 1902, 1904, 1906, into the 1930s about the colonial state's struggle with rats. Uh, what had happened is when the French uh, did the major rebuilding of Hanoi, which was between 1897 and 1902 under uh, Governor General Paul Dumer, really wanted to create a modern city. Uh, the French are uh, obsessed with sewers. Um, you know, think of um, Les Mis or uh, sort of the images of of the the sewers as a symbol of modernity in 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 Paris in the 19th century. They built sewers for the first time in the 19th century. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, um, when they, they were when they were modernizing Paris. Yeah, under under Houseman, uh, a great architect. Napole yeah, under civic planner Napoleon the Third, and they yeah. redid Paris. And um, one of my favorite tours in Paris. Uh, is actually the sewer tour, and I mm. strongly recommend people do it. It's absolutely amazing. And under every street in Paris, there's um, a, a tunnel that um, has the same street name and, and mirrors the street all through Paris, doors going up to each building. It's an incredible tour. Um, before these sewers, everything was just flowing down the streets. Is that right? Yeah. Generally, you'd throw out the night soil and into the street, and it'd be a gutter right down the center. Mm -hmm. um, and that would that would wash into into the sand. So Paris just stunk yeah. to high heaven. All cities, all cities in Europe did. Uh -huh. um, all cities in Europe did. You know, many Asian cities, by contrast, were substantially cleaner and better run than pre-industrial European cities. Hmm. But industrial European cities had this obsession with hygiene, and modernity, and urbanism. And when they came to um, China or Southeast Asia, they looked at these cities and saw them as backwards and needing to be rebuilt and, and modernized. Mm -hmm. So building sewers was really a French obsession and this great symbol of modernity. And they they laid out a very modern, very advanced sewer system for the French neighborhood in Hanoi. And for the Vietnamese neighborhood, it was a fairly rudimentary drainage system, which when it started to rain would backflow. 
um, and it's it's Vietnam. It starts to rain every year, and it rains really hard. I mean, it's a, it's a monsoon climate. And so they, they destroyed the existing drainage systems and probably made health conditions worse in the Vietnamese section of the city for uh, for a few years. But the French neighborhood had this great sewer system, uh, tunnels underneath the streets, flush toilets in all the villas, and was, again, this great symbol of colonial modernity. Unfortunately, these sewers became a haven for rats who had never experienced this kind of (laughs) micro-environment before. There's no predators down there, and the rat population explodes dramatically. Um, and, and rats would start to come out into the homes of the of the French, climb up the flush toilet drainage systems into the and, and out of the toilet into the bathroom and into the kitchen and so forth. And that that was a problem. But it was even more serious when the bubonic plague broke out, because the sewer systems provided a means of access for the rats. You start to have uh, cases of bubonic plague in the French neighborhoods. And this is when about 1902. And this simply won't do. <laughs> this something needs to be done at this point. It's one thing to have bubonic plague breaking out in the other section of the city, but in the French neighborhood, the state has to swing into action. So they form so these, these ratification. Yeah. yeah. So they form these uh, brigades of rat killers, who go into the streets of the French neighborhoods, go down the manholes, and start pulling out rats by First, hand. By hand. And the first couple of days, and it, you know, it's, it's these are Vietnamese, right? They're these pretty, are Vietnamese workers, yeah, um, getting paid uh, very low wages. And they're plunging down through these manholes into these sewers. I mean, who knows what's in there? I mean, obviously rats. I would suspect snakes, spiders, all kinds of nasty things. Not to mention sewage. Not to mention sewage. It must have stunk to high heaven. And this campaign starts in the spring when it really starts to get hot in Hanoi. So it's it's been an awful, awful job. These poor guys are sent down there. And the first couple days... They pull up. Uh, they pull up a thousand rats. A thousand rats. That's that's a lot of rats, right? Well, then they start to refine their technique, and they're pulling up five, six, seven thousand rats a day. And after a course of, a, of two or three weeks, and then they start to pull up fifteen thousand rats in a single day. And I think they broke twenty thousand rats in a single day. Um, according and, to these records, according that, to these records that I'm looking at, <laughs> these these dossiers that where someone's ticking off all the rats, and the numbers just increase dramatically, and then things start to really go awry in the summer, and now it's really really hot in Hanoi. Two things start to happen. Uh, first, the Vietnamese rat catchers say, "Hey, um, this is a terrible job. We're not getting paid enough," and they go out on strike. To make matters worse for the French administrators. The French start to complain about this program and say, you know, hey, you know, we, we don't want these filth-covered workers in our neighborhoods. You know, they, we paid good money to live here. This, this is the worse French than the rats. This is worse, worse than, than the plague. The, well, they don't they don't go that far, but they they have the gall, pardon the pun, but they have the gall to complain <laughs> about the uh, these guys that are trying to improve the health conditions in their fancy villas. Right, right. So everything everything <laughs> everything comes to a halt um, in the summer of. Um, in the summer of this rat killing program, the French uh, administrators in Hanoi try and figure out what to do. And they say, well, you know, maybe we could put a bounty out on rats. Uh, you know, appeal to um, both the sense of Vietnamese civic responsibility and also to the, the profit motive. And someone has the bright idea, okay, maybe we don't want them to bring the whole rat down to the city hall. Just bring the tail of the rat down to the city hall. And the first day that they implement this program, several dozen Vietnamese bring thousands of rat tails in. And this is great because, you know, all, the, all these, these rats are being killed, right? They have their tails cut off. The rats have been killed. And uh, the, the mayor of Hanoi and the administrators are very proud of themselves. This goes on for several months until the health inspector is out in one of the suburbs of Hanoi. And this health inspector notices there's a lot of rats out there with no tails. <laughs> <laughs> and quickly comes to the conclusion that... The Vietnamese have been cutting off the tails of the rat, bringing the tails in for the bounty, but letting the rats go in order to multiply and produce more rat tails to get more money. An economy has sprung up around mm. rat tails. But it, get, but it gets worse than that because <laughs> when they, they discovered these rats running around with no tails, they think initially it's just sort of a, a hunting and, uh, expedition where they're cutting off the tails. Then they start to find rat farms. And local entrepreneurs are building farms, raising rats, cutting off their tails, taking them in for the bounty. 
and reproducing more rats. And at that point, the French throw their hands up and say, okay, forget it. <laughs> this isn't going to work. <laughs> That's going down between 1902 and 1906. In the early 1930s, they still have this rat problem. And in that same dossier of documents, a generation later, these administrators are looking at the problem and they say, oh, well, you know, maybe we could put a bounty out on rats. Someone says, no, 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 no. We've, <laughs> we've tried that before and pulls out the uh, reports of what happened. So by putting out a bounty on rats, they created a new rat breeding industry and right. the whole thing backfired. Yeah. Economists call that a perverse incentive. An incentive that actually has the opposite effect of that which is intended. Exactly. And that is an argument I'm going to assume that laissez-faire people use all the time to say, leave the economy alone, let it run itself, right? <laughs> yeah. Government yeah. should not interfere. No social engineering. Yeah. Well, how representative is this, you know, in a allegorical way of the whole French colonial enterprise? Not just to pick on the French, but I, I think this really... <laughs> captures the whole colonial experience. Um, states coming in, conquering societies, trying to implement their understanding of a social order, trying to, for better or worse, welcome or not, modernize societies, and realizing they really have no control over what's going on. I mean, it really is um, out of their hands. And um, the, the numbers of unintended consequences that we see throughout the history of colonialism are just absolutely astounding. And it's one of the reasons I think that it's such a fascinating uh, period in world history to study. Um, tell me another story. Again, pulling from your um, dossier of articles, let's look at this other study you did, which you titled uh, Of Pirates, Postcards, and Public Beheadings, The Pedagogical Execution in French Colonial Indochina. This was inspired by two things. One is um, the contribution of the, the French philosopher Michel Foucault, who talks about the creation of the modern prison as, as a symbol of modernity and the move away from what he calls the spectacle of the scaffold, which is sort of, you know, the uh, think of Braveheart and the William Wallace execution and, and public executions, <laughs> but, but, you know, cutting off his head and, and drawing and quartering and yeah, yeah. all that, um, again, spectacle, the scaffold. Yeah, Michel yeah. Foucault argues that that disappears in the 19th century mm -hmm. and you have the modern state creating systems of discipline where the discipline is hidden away in the prison. But extended out into all kinds of social control and Ab even control absolutely. of knowledge, you know. Absolutely. absolutely. Prison is a model of, absolutely. of Western knowledge itself, right. policing the boundaries right. of, of what's known and what's right. not known. But his, so his most clear example, and I would argue his most readable book, is, <laughs> is Discipline and Punish, when he really lays this out. Well, and it starts said, with a graphic description of an execution. Mm -hmm, <laughs> I'll mm -hmm. never forget and that. Transitions <laughs> to the modern penitentiary. Mm -hmm. Well, that's not happening in the colonial world. Mm. On the contrary, colonial states, which are these symbols of modernity in their eyes, are engaging in all sorts of pre-modern forms of discipline. And we see this most clearly with executions. The colonial state engages in what I call the pedagogical execution, an execution that's designed to punish the criminal, but also teach the society as a whole a lesson. Yeah, scare them straight. Scare them straight. So public executions are... Uh, common throughout the colonial era. And they, um, oftentimes these executions are these bizarre hybrids of French and, say, Vietnamese customs. So we're we talking a, a guillotine with a Vietnamese twist, or what are we talking? Um, in the earlier period, going up to about the First World War, Vietnamese criminals, and especially rebels, uh, were frequently dispatched with um, beheading by a sword, using a traditional Vietnamese sword, or at least what the French understood to be a traditional Vietnamese form of execution. It's this hodgepodge of uh, Vietnamese and, and French traditions thrown together into something else. And you're saying this is this is the kind of thing that they were no longer doing in France. Well, public executions are going on in France, but they're going on at the gate of the prison, and they go on up until the early 1930s. But these are executions that, um, you know, in Hanoi, for example, uh, the condemned would be taken out of the Maison Centrale, the, the prison in the center of Hanoi, which will later on become known as the Hanoi Hilton. It's the same prison that uh, really? John McCain and others were imprisoned wow. in. Yeah, it's the same prison right there. Uh -huh. And they would be marched through the city um, and taken to an execution ground. And there would be all sorts of people attending these executions. So it would become a huge, it, it was a spectacle, it was a pageant. What I found is a whole collection of postcards of these executions. 
there'd be a series of postcards of say sometimes a dozen or more postcards all the same execution where the condemned are taken out of the Maison Centrale, photographs of them being marched through the city, taken to the execution ground, forced to kneel down, and even images of them at the moment of beheading and then their heads being displayed afterwards. And these these are postcards. You know, these these aren't photographs used to go in an archive somewhere. This is something being commercially produced and then sold in the streets of Hanoi. To to French buyers. Tourists? To, to tourists, to administrators. Dear and, and Marie, what? I'm in Hanoi three days now and missing you terribly. I can't wait to return to Paris where we can once again picnic on the banks of the Seine, turn over the postcard to see a beheaded man. Right. So I mean, <laughs> what do you do with a co- postcard? I mean, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's one thing to sell an image, but this is an image that's designed to go into an economy of information. It's going to you're going to write a message on it. You're going to put a stamp on it. You're going to send it to your friends in Saigon or in Shanghai or more likely than not back to France mm-hmm. and say, you know, this is how we deal with things in the colonies. You know, to my early 21st sensibility, that's pretty shocking. And you came across this in one of those boxes in the archives at Exxon. I, I, fa- I found Pavels. some of these uh, postcards in various collections uh-huh. in, in archives, but also some of these postcards you could buy in uh, antique post- postcard dealers. Um, on, on the Seine, for example, there's those little boxes of, of book vendors. Sometimes they have collections of postcards. You can find some of these things. And that was pretty startling. But then I had this moment where I had to step back and, and realize, you know, this is a tradition that's also common in the United States at the very same time period. Lynchings. With lynchings and production of postcards of lynchings. And there really is a, a global phenomenon of postcard images of these executions that are that are really racially charged and very heavily racially coded. And again, as postcards, these are images that um, are put into a wider circulation. This is an image that is really out there. What do you think the purpose of that is? I mean, if you want to pacify the population, you might hold a public execution and publish the photos in the local newspaper. But why circulate these photos among the colonials themselves and the people back home who aren't the target of these penalties, mm-hmm. right? Why mm-hmm. do that? You know, that's a tough one to figure out. That's yeah. a tough one to figure out. And it's it's one of those areas where historians, you know, start to come up short. I mean, we're so obsessed with textual evidence. And, you know, I suppose you could do a study going through these postcards, reading the backs of the postcards and seeing how often there were comments on the back. But that's a very, very mm. imprecise science, mm. and most of these postcards mm. are, are, are gone. They've mm. disappeared. You only have a few in, in various collections to explain you know, individual motives. I think what's really important about these postcards is they're indicative of a level of quotidian, commonplace, everyday violence in the colonial encounter. It's very easy to just sort of forget and, uh, about the, the nature of what colonialism really is. And think about, well, you know, that the French colonized Vietnam, and that's why we have these really wonderful Vietnamese sandwiches with a baguette and and and, and Some really and nice architecture so back forth. in Hanoi. Some architecture, um, you know, and, and think about the, you know, the, the spread of the French language. You know, I, I, was, I was really amazed when I was in um, northern Thailand and, and crossed the border into Laos a few years ago. I went across the Mekong, and I'm in Thailand, land of the noodles. And I had a sandwich or two on that vacation, and they were just... Awful, just terrible bread. <laughs> cross the uh, the border, across the Mekong into Laos, and what's the first thing I see? Baguette sandwiches for sale, and just a beautiful, beautiful baguette. <laughs> How on earth in the in the highlands of Southeast Asia, as this developer, they're, they're, they have they have the baguettes. legacy of, yeah, of the French. Yeah. But, but you're saying that taking control of a country far, far away. And making its people do your bidding, such as produce rubber, let's say, for very low wages, mm-hmm. is not a nice affair? No, <laughs> surprise, surprise, right? It's it's a violent act. And we know that. We know that, right? Right. But we think about, you know, the conquest as violent. Yeah. Dealing with a few rebellions as violent. And then a war of decolonization as violent. But that perspective on colonialism bookends the violence at the beginning few major disruptions, and then at the end. Mm-hmm. What I would argue is that there is, again, a quotidian violence that is just part of the colonial condition. It's a day-to-day affair, and there's a certain degree of anxiety in the minds of the colonizers. 
uh, you see this throughout the colonies. I mean, they, they are occupiers. They are there by force. They're enjoying a privileged material status. They're extracting wealth. And they're doing this at the barrel of a gun. And they are incredibly outnumbered by the population that, uh, that they've conquered. Mm. Now, this is not to say that there aren't any collaborators in mm. the colonial context. I mean, it really would be impossible without collaboration. Gandhi was very clear about that. He said he wasn't so disappointed with the British. He was really disappointed with the Indians who were collaborating and cooperating mm. with mm. The, the, British, uh, the British Empire. Mm -hmm. But the, uh, the, the nature of colonial rule is, is conquest and the maintenance of a colonial order of things with violence. Well, you've been studying um, murders, too, in colonial Hanoi. What are you looking for there? <laughs> I think murder cases are fascinating because that's when everything is laid bare. Um, various social niceties, various understandings of uh, bourgeois norms of comportment and so forth, various forms of lip service to, in the French case, the civilizing mission. This is what they called their great bold plan for right, the third the, world. The, uh, the mission civilisatis, the civilizing mission. Uh, that's uh, how they justified colonialism. Right, right. They were going to Com bring comparable the, to the white man's burden. Bring the enlightenment to these right. benighted countries. Right, right. Yeah. Just don't let them read Voltaire or Rousseau because <laughs> they talk about political freedoms. Well, that was another question. I hate to interrupt, but yeah. back in France, you know, the motto ever since, you know, more or less the time of the French Revolution, liberté, égalité, fraternité, mm -hmm. right? Liberty, equality, and brotherhood. How do the French back home make sense of what they're doing to all these countries in Africa and Southeast Asia and elsewhere? Well, that is one of the key paradoxes of the French colonial enterprise. Uh, and, you know, there's the famous fer French paradox of how can they eat so much duck fat yet stay, stay rail thin? <laughs> um, I mean, there's, there, there's this other more profound colonial paradox. I mean, what does it mean for a republic? Keep in mind, the French Third Republic, which was founded in 1871, is the most progressive state in Europe in early 19th century. Um, this is the time of the, the Kaiser and the German Empire, mm -hmm. the Tsar's Empire. Mm -hmm. um, the British are, are on the road. I mean, they've achieved universal manhood suffrage, mm. but it's still, it's still a monarchy. But France is, in some ways, really radical. It is a republic. Mm. It is a republic. Um, yeah, I mean, you got the... A, a patriarchal republic. Mm. Women don't get the vote. But universal manhood suffrage and the leaders of the French Republic fought against royalists fought against um, supporters of Napoleon's family, fought against uh, military uh, leaders, generals such as uh, Boulanger, who wanted to establish a military rule. Firm, firm believers in the Republican tradition established a system of schools, very, very proud of their schools, as instilling Republican values in young French boys, later young French girls, and they, they really create this culture of a republic. And by the way, we should make it really clear when we say Republican, we mean smaller. representative government. Yeah, smaller, smaller. <laughs> representative government. Um, at the same time, this republic is building an empire. And how does a republic that values the legacy of 1789, that values uh, the Declaration of the Rights of Man and Citizen, that values liberté, égalité, fraternité, um, how does it engage in conquest of people where they are taking away their liberty, their equality, and denying any form of fraternity or fraternization? Can I suggest an answer? Sure. The same way the United States justified slavery, by saying these people aren't us, these people are subhuman. One thing about the French colonial project, though, is it's not as explicitly Darwinian hmm. as, say, the British Empire. I think the rhetoric of the British Empire is more open in its discussion of race and its uses of racism. I think the French colonial empire was a racist project, was maintained by a high degree of racism, but it's packaged in the language of culture mm -hmm. and civilization. And baguettes. And baguettes. <laughs> and the, the sense of... Um, advancing people to a higher level of culture. The French have a concept of uh, les évolués, the evolved. Mm. And they frequently would, uh, in, the, in the colonial and late colonial and, and period of, of independence in the 1960s and 70s, point to West African intellectuals who studied in France, spoke beautiful French, wrote poetry in French, and say, okay, ha <laughs> mm -hmm. they got it, right? Mm -hmm. They got it. They have evolved. Mm -hmm. 
Now, you can say that's an argument about culture, but the whole idea that someone has to evolve out of their culture into French culture, mm. I, I think, is an inherently racist, mm. uh, an inherently racist argument. Now, you don't have that same phenomenon in the British Empire. You don't have that concept of the evolved in the same way. Sure, Gandhi was educated in London. Initially went into South Africa, wore British clothes, behaved like a, an educated Brit. And what did he face in South Africa? Incredible racism. Mm -hmm. He's famously mm -hmm. pulled off the train, even though he can afford mm -hmm. the first class ticket and told to get in third class or get off the train. So you don't have that same sense of a civilizing mission. So even and, though you, you cited the Kipling poem, The White mm -hmm. Man's Burden, which is sort of a complaint about we've got to go out there and take care of these people because they can't take care of themselves. Mm -hmm. uh, that that wasn't the British mission, though, to, to raise up and uplift? Uh, I don't think that they've... The, in the British Empire, the culture has that rhetoric of viewing the subject people as equals that can be made uh -huh. into, in, into Britishers. So who is worse, the French or the British? Oh, wait, 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 who's worse? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, or the they, Spanish or the Portuguese. <laughs> <laughs> they were all bad in their own ways, right? Is that that's that's what we have to say? What what what, what is what is worse? I mean, right. what is I mean, this, who were the cruelest? Who were the cru colonizers? Germans. Germans. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't really have an empire, really. Well, they, okay, two things. Um, they built one in Europe uh, mm -hmm. by um, conquering the rest of the German states, mm -hmm. turning Prussia into the Second German Empire, and then Bismarck um, encouraged the French to find glory overseas. And only in the 1880s was he reluctantly forced to engage in colonial expansion. And later, the the second Kaiser, Kaiser Wilhelm II, really really doubled down on imperialism. And he's the one who you know was famously referred to as behaving as a bull, like a bull in a china shop, yeah. with his reckless foreign policy. And by that point, most of the good colonies were grabbed. I mean, yeah, the Germans really didn't get very much. No, they didn't get very much. Um, German Southwest Africa, German East Africa. Um, Part of Samoa, uh, part of New Guinea. I mean, I'm mm, sure lovely, wow. lovely places, absolutely, ah. but not the prestige colonies. <laughs> I mean, not <laughs> India, not West Africa. Uh, they did, they did get a little sliver of territory. It was Togo, mm. um, Cameroon. Mm. The behavior in German Southwest Africa is perhaps one of the worst cases of colonial expansion. I mean, you have a campaign against the Herero people that really is one of the first cases of genocide wow. in the 20th century. Mm. And there's a wave of German historians now who are starting to look at this brief moment of German colonialism and linking that with what's to come in Germany. The Third Reich. Uh, the Third Reich. And, and yet um, some countries who aren't thought of as being the most rapacious did horrible things in their colonies. The Belgians in the Congo, right? Mm -hmm. That was one of the most horrible scenarios. Mm -hmm. The Belgian case is, is the, the darkest chapter in the history of imperialism, absolutely. It's also one of the most idiosyncratic because initially the Belgian Congo, and it's a territory 80 times the size of Belgium. Mm -hmm. Initially, it was not a colony of Belgium. It was the private possession of King Leopold II. It was referred to legally as the Congo Free State. And this was part of his way of manipulating public opinion and manipulating the media, manipulating the other European heads. And he said, you know, Belgium's a small country. We don't have a large appetite. We'll take this territory. We'll work as a buffer against the French and the Germans and the British. And this will be the Congo Free State. Well, it'll be a colony that's designed to improve the lives of the Africans. And there was this incredible propaganda effort about how he was going to build schools and really engage in what the French called a civilizing mission. The reality is it was a sealed territory and you have the, the worst excesses of violent colonial exploitation, initially for ivory and then later for rubber. Essentially slavery, yeah? yeah beyond slavery. Beyond slavery. And beyond slavery. I mean, mm -hmm. one of the key things in slavery is that the human beings are a form of capital. Mm-hmm. And thus you have an investment there. Mm -hmm. the, uh, the Congolese people are being um, not only worked to death, but being terrorized. Adam Hothschild, uh, for example, as uh, King Leopold's ghost. Great yeah. book, King Leopold's Ghost, um, came out, what, 10, 15 years yeah, ago? Yeah, about 15 years ago, um, yeah. One thing I don't like about that book is he presents it as this unknown story. It's like, well, I, 
I remember that story from when I was in high school. Mm-hmm. And granted, I was a nerd and <laughs> reading about colonial well, he, history. He pointed out that it was a huge cause uh, for human rights activists. Yeah. First international human rights campaign. Mark Twain. Mark Twain. Uh, Caseman, E.D. Morrell, all, you know, some of the real heroes of the early 20th yeah. century for human rights. We're fighting against King Leopold's uh, atrocities in the Congo. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You're saying it's even worse than slavery, though. Worse than slavery. I mean, the, the, the numbers are, are astounding. Probably, what is it, about 10 million Congolese killed? Killed. And many in others mutilated. Mutilated. I mean, there's the they famous severing with, of hands. Yeah, yeah. Don't collect enough ivory, then later not enough rubber. Yeah. Um, everyone in the village, if they don't meet the quota, would lose a hand. Um, taking uh, women and children as hostages. The famous um, uh, whippings with the uh, whip made of a hippopotamus hide cut in a triangular shape so that it was designed to leave these severe lacerations that would more often than not lead to death. I mean, just absolute horror. And it's all sealed. The, the, the colony's sealed. No one knows what's going on in there. And it's not until a clerk working in Belgium doing the books notices that with the Congo Free State, there's two-way trade. There's a lot of ivory coming out of the Congo, but the only thing going to the Congo are guns and bullets and shackles. And that's not a natural flow of trade. And it's not until someone who's working as a clerk, um, a British subject working as a clerk uh, for the Belgians begins to discover this. Wow. And Caseman and E.D. Morel begin to uh, bring this to light and, again, start this uh, first international human rights campaign that eventually takes the colony's control away from King Leopold and puts it in the hands of the Belgian government. It gets a little better, but the track record of, uh, of Belgian colonial rule is is not Exactly stellar. Well, I think we've answered the question of who is worse. It was King Leopold. <laughs> King Let's just settle on that. Okay. <laughs> you know. Who, who was allegedly booed at his funeral. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you know, uh, Newt Gingrich, uh, his PhD dissertation was on Belgian colonialism. Yeah. Have you read it? I, no, I haven't read it. I've, as anyone who's been in graduate school, I haven't read it, but I, I've read about <laughs> it and I have an opinion on it. <laughs> oh, boy. Um, well, you know, this is all a long tangent I put you on yeah. because we were talking about murder in Hanoi right. under, right. under yeah. French colonialism. Yeah. So what's your interest in murders in Hanoi during the French colonial period? I mean, it's, it sounds cool, but I'm assuming you have more reason than that. <laughs> you want to sell books, you want to sell articles, you want to sell lectures to undergraduates. You got to have sex and violence. Sex and violence. And, and drugs, too. I mean, there's the opium dealing, but... <laughs> oh, yeah, we haven't talked about that either. Damn. <laughs> but... Um, I think murder cases are an incredible window for looking at colonialism because the true power relationships of the colonial context are, are laid bare. All the anxieties of, an, of a, a white racial minority ruling over a conquered population come to the fore. The idea that white bodies are vulnerable, um, that the colonial state can't protect everyone. This uh, gives a moment for the settler society to articulate all its anxieties, all its concerns, mm. and all all its fears. Is this a good example? This article you wrote on um, some guy named Bazin who was was killed in Hanoi. He's called Le Negrier Bazin in mm-hmm. your title. Yeah, and Le ne- Negrier is, is a slave trader. Um, was he a slave trader? Well, Bazin's job was that he was a labor recruiter for Michelin. And he was oh, rubber. Re- recruiting, right, rubber, recruiting impoverished peasants from Tonkin, northern Vietnam, and giving them contracts, which generally they did not understand, and sending them down to the rubber plantations in southern Vietnam or off to uh, some of the islands in the Pacific where they were uh, working as laborers. Oh, so he was a human trafficker. Human trafficking, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and hence the uh, the epithet of slave trader. Uh-huh. If you've ever seen the uh, the French film Andochine with Catherine Deneuve, there's a character in there that I think is probably based upon, upon this guy, oh, really? or at wow. least guys like him. Um, and they have the, the slave market where they're taking peasants from the north and sending them down to the south. And the conditions that they're working on the plantations are absolutely horrible. Regular use of physical discipline and stuck in contracts that they don't understand and not allowed to leave. Mm-hmm. So that's who this guy is. He's a labor recruiter. And the, the night of his death is this incredibly cinematic moment. What year are we talking about? 1929. Okay. And it's Tet, the Vietnamese Lunar New Year. The streets are filled with fireworks. And this guy has been visiting his mistress, uh, Matisse, a mixed race, uh, French-Vietnamese woman. And he's leaving her home on, uh, on Rue Hue in the southern part of Hanoi. 
and uh, you can just imagine the the sounds of Ted and the fireworks and so forth. And he steps out into the street, and two Vietnamese men approach him and hand him a note. He reads the note. Mr. Bazin, you've been found guilty of crimes against the Vietnamese people and sentenced to death. And then they shoot him point blank and run away. Initially, nobody hears the shot because of the fireworks and, and all the hoopla of the Tet celebration. And then when you know they realize there's a dead body in the street, they call the police. The police come down, uh, look at the body, find the note, take the note down to the police station. And an absolutely amazing piece of police work. I mean, this is CSI Hanoi. They take this note, they look at it and go, ah, we know that handwriting. We know who to arrest. <laughs> so that defies belief a little bit. But they, they, the police run out and round up the usual suspects. Uh, arrests initially several dozen people. Later, several hundred people are arrested. Um, several of these suspects um, are tortured and confess to being part of a plot. This news gets back to the press in France and Humanité, the communist paper, uh, who's one of the few critics of the French colonial project, makes this front page news and shows, you know, here's the the French colonial states, the assassins of the workers, torturing people, yada, yada, yada. And they're the ones who start to refer to this guy as a negre, a slave trader. Ah. And the colonial state responds by um, becoming increasingly obsessed with the communists. The communists are behind this. In reality, it was the nationalists who were behind it, the non-communist uh, opposition. But this sets in motion a whole series of dominoes that eventually results in uh, an outbreak of open rebellion the following year with a mutiny and later the, uh, an uprising in um, two provinces of Vietnam where the peasants formed Soviets and the French had to suppress these uprisings with um, aerial bombardment and really, really brutal treatment. So the, the French held on to Indochina, what we now know as Vietnam, right up until 1954, you know, 70, 80 years, right? Mm -hmm. How did they manage that? I mean, when the Vietnamese were already rebelling, as you're pointing out, back in 1929 and maybe before, mm -hmm. how did they manage it? Well, after this murder of Bazin and the uprising at Yen Bay and the, the, the Soviets that are formed, there's a massive wave of arrests. The nationalists are rounded up. Many members of the Vietnamese communist movement are rounded up, thrown into prisons. One thing happens in the prisons. Tough people survive. The nationalists, urban, educated, elite, no. don't make it. Mm. The communists who already have had training to survive in the underground, many from the working class, they not only survive, but the French colonial prisons, these colonial bastilles, become a breeding ground and a training center for the communist movement. And then comes 1936. Faced with the threat of Nazism in Germany, the French elect the Popular Front government, which is a coalition of center moderates, the socialists, and the French Communist Party. When the French Communist Party is part of this um, coalition government, they order the release of all political prisoners in the colonies. What this means is that people who had gone into the prison as Communist Party members or as petty criminals had become communists, had become trained, and they're released in 1936, 1937, and they disappear into the countryside, into the cities, into the mountains. They're, they're waiting for the right moment. When the Japanese invade in the 1940s in World War II, they actually take control of French Indochina away from the French, and the Vietnamese communists are the ones who have the best track record during the war of resisting the Japanese. So come the end of World War II, the Japanese don't really want to see colonial Southeast Asia go into the hands of the European colonial powers. So they let Sukarno in the Dutch East Indies declare independence. And in Vietnam, they let Ho Chi Minh declare independence in September 1945. And this meant that the French had to reoccupy, to recolonize the country. The French were seeing it as recolonization, but in the context of the Cold War, because Ho Chi Minh and the Vietnamese were communists, Washington saw this as a war against communism. So this led to American aid for the French reoccupation of Vietnam. Oh. And by 1950, the United States was paying 80% of the, the bill for the war. Wow. 
not because the United States is supporting colonialism, but because they're trying to stop Vietnam from right, going right. communist. Yeah, yeah. This is a war of counterinsurgency. It was a war that you know France was never going to win. And uh-huh. it's, it's extremely important for France to hold on to its colonies after World War II because World War II did not go very well for France. <laughs> nor did World War I, nor did the Franco-Prussian War, nor had uh, the end of the Napoleonic Wars. Yeah, Waterloo wasn't too good either. Yeah, so the French military has a lot at stake in winning this war in terms of prestige. And the French civilian government will acknowledge defeat in 1954. Yeah. And that sets the stage for Algeria, where the French generals absolutely refuse to to lose well yeah and, and, and we don't have another story yeah we don't have time for the algerian war yeah. suffice it to say that one started in uh, 1954 went to 1962 like half a million dead a huge awful war uh, probably more more and a, a cycle of of torture um and terrorism that just plunges algeria into absolute chaos and mm. really tears at the moral framework of of france but then, of course, into the void left by France in Indochina steps Uncle Sam mm-hmm. uh, a little later, mm-hmm. right? Um, but you just explained how America was inheriting an impossible situation, uh, insurgency and nationalist movement that was by then really strong and really good at covert warfare. Yeah. Good at covert warfare, but also had legitimate political credentials. Oh, yeah. The, the movement had resisted the Japanese had defeated the French, and by the Geneva Accords of 1954, elections would be held in both North and South Vietnam within two years. Elections were held in North Vietnam, and Ho Chi Minh won. Elections were not held in the South, and everyone from President Diem to um, uh, President Eisenhower knew that if elections were held, Ho Chi Minh would win in the South as well. So in the name of keeping Vietnam from going communist and supporting democracy. Elections were not held in South Vietnam. Yes, if only American uh, policymakers had consulted French historians like yourself (laughs) before deciding to go into Vietnam. If only they were public radio (laughs) listeners. (laughs) Well, let's see. We've made it through the Rat Massacre, uh, murders in Hanoi, Let's do sex. Okay. You've got some articles here about yeah. sex in colonial Hanoi. Yeah. Well, the, these articles on sex stem from my research in colonial cartoons. And what I, what I found is, like murder cases, locally produced cartoons in the papers and um, locally produced comic books are a great window for getting at the mentality of the French colonizers. They're much more open when they're making jokes amongst themselves. And I found just a real treasure trove of historical documents from 1897 in Hanoi. And these are cartoons that were in a locally produced newspaper. So we're talking a run of 50, 60 copies. I mean, it'd be comparable to before the internet, what we used to call a zine. Mm. <laughs> you know, it's something that the punk rockers making <laughs> at two in the morning in Kinko's. I mean, it's just a locally produced paper produced by French in Hanoi, for French in Hanoi. Uh. And 1897 is important because that's the moment right before Hanoi became the official capital of French Indochina. And it's overwhelmingly male in terms of the French population. And this newspaper I looked at is like locker room conversation amongst white male colonizers. And it's full of cartoons about sex in the city. Where to go to have a wild time? Where, where, what neighborhoods the prostitutes are in? What sort of mischief and trouble you can get into? And it's this incredibly honest source. They're not worried about the filter of bourgeois society, of um, French women looking over their shoulder here. And it's an incredibly frank discussion of sexuality in the city. And these documents are right before this major demographic change, when French women start to show up in large numbers. And within a few years, those cartoons completely disappear. Mm. So it's, those documents are this great window into this moment. And the cartoons show the city as a site of sexual opportunity for white men who, because of their economic power, political power, and military power as colonizers, can do what they want. And I think it's an incredible me- metaphor for colonialism because it shows the desire to possess the land, and really the bodies of the people. One last article. Yeah. 
You're so good with titles, it's hard to stop at just one more, but we're going to have to. Hanoi in the Time of Cholera, Epidemic Disease and Racial Power in the Colonial City. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Is this something else you discovered while going through old documents? Yeah, going through the documents, um, you know, it should come as no surprise that health concerns are a major, major issue for the French colonial state. The various endemic and epidemic diseases of the tropics, bubonic plague, uh, waterborne diseases, dengue fever, malaria, but also cholera. And the, um, the French uh, medical authorities wanted to develop a vaccine to stop the spread of cholera. And there's several uh, cholera epidemics I look at in the 1920s and 1930s, where teams of French doctors supported by soldiers, so this is done at the barrel, barrel of a gun, would surround certain neighborhoods during an outbreak of a cholera epidemic and administer cholera vaccines by force, barrel of a gun. Um, you cannot enter or leave the neighborhood without getting a vaccine. Uh, they do this several times in the 1920s and 1930s. And one of the things they found in the documents is the uh, effectiveness of the vaccine is very unclear. They had no evidence that it worked, and they were keeping records of how it worked amongst this population. And it didn't really work. We don't have a cholera vaccine. But even more damning, I found in the memoir of one of the doctors that ran this campaign that the doctors themselves wouldn't take the vaccine. And one doctor in his memoir wrote that probably drinking a shot of whiskey every night was a better way to prevent cholera than actually uh, injecting this vaccine in their arms. So what was going on here is the French were essentially field testing vaccines on a colonized population at the barrel of a gun. Was there anything good about colonialism? I mean, I, I had this image before this interview of exotic locales and saloons with Sydney Green Street characters fanning <laughs> themselves and engaged in various forms of intrigue and verandas and Mai Tais and Singapore slings and all these cool things. And you just ruined it for me, Mike. <laughs> It's the job of a historian. <laughs> I mean, sure, uh, it was good for the haves, uh, both uh, wealthy colonial uh, entrepreneurs, uh, colonial administrators. It was a good thing. It was great for the careers of uh, naval inf infantry officers. Colonialism was also great for Vietnamese, Malay, West African entrepreneurs that collaborated with the uh, the colonial project. Colonialism was great for those Vietnamese or Senegalese or Malagasies or Tahitians who could get into a French school and get a French education. Mm. And the French really play that up. Now, how much money they actually spent on building schools and universities, that's another issue. I mean, it really is a token uh, percentage of the, the colonized people that actually get a French education. But sure... I mean, the, 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 these are these are these are the nicer side of colonialism. One thing to note is that um, uh, almost ten years ago, uh, late at night, with very few uh, members of the French Parliament actually there, the French Chamber of Deputies actually there, a law was pushed through requiring that French schools always teach the positive side of colonialism along with the negative side. Seriously. So what, what are they teaching? Education? Well, this was this eradication in, of disease well, and modernity. Good, good question, right? Good yeah. question. Um, but this was pushed through immediately in the middle of the night by a far right politician and due to legislative procedure, it took a number of months before it was repealed, but it was repealed uh -huh. as quickly as possible. But there is a very strong current within France that does want to stress the positive side or the good side of the colonial project. And there are those who firmly still believe in the civilizing mission of the project. I mean, yes, roads were built. Yes, sewers were built. But who were they serving? I mean, most and of the what happened to those countries after the French left? Well, I mean, in the case of Africa, you know, the majority of, of colonized countries sooner or later degenerated into to horrible war. You know, well, I mean, so if you look at if you look at the infrastructure projects, I mean, this is this is the most concrete manifestation of the civilizing mission of colonialism. You can you can look on paper at the number of kilometers or miles of roads built or railways laid in West Africa, and there's some pretty impressive numbers. 
Were those numbers designed to produce a locally self-sustaining economy? Or were they linking mines to ports or plantations to ports? Were they designed to develop the local infrastructure, the local economy, again, to be self-sustaining? Or were they simply a means of creating an infrastructure for extraction and thereby creating dependency? And were tribal and uh, regional rivalries exacerbated, you know, made worse by occupation. Look at some of these these colonized countries where then, you know, because th- these artificial boundaries that were put around groups that were never meant to be part of the same nation, mm-hmm. different mm-hmm. languages, creating all kinds of intense, you know, hatreds and rivalries. Yeah. Well, throughout the late 19th century and the early 20th century, lines are drawn on maps of Africa and Asia in Berlin, in London, in Brussels, in Paris, by white men, I would imagine, in a smoke-filled room. That's where these things normally happen, right? (laughs) Smoke-filled rooms. Um, Lions are drawn on the map, creating these colonies with no real understanding of the economic, linguistic, cultural, spiritual histories of the people on the ground. Come independence in the late 1950s and 1960s, the new nations that joined the U.N., inherited these old colonial boundaries. Boundaries that, again, were not decided based upon the historical trajectory that Africans were headed or Southeast Asians were headed or Southeast Asians were headed. And this, in many ways, was a recipe for disaster and I think is the longest-lasting and most serious legacy of colonialism. We see this with India and Pakistan. We see this throughout Africa. We see this with Iraq. I mean, the the boundaries of modern Iraq were created by a secret treaty, Sykes-Picot, during World War One, and it was designed to put together Shiites, Kurds, and Sunnis in Great a, recipe. An, uh, an unstable state yeah. that could be controlled. Wow. Man. Well, you know that, that sort of ridiculous romantic image of colonialism that I you know described mm-hmm. a moment ago? Verandas and sarongs and good mixed drinks and a life well, that of, existed and a life of leisure. I mean that existed for some. It existed, but it was also perpetuated by a, a whole bunch of movies and books and things, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Stuff that was still in circulation, still is in circulation. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. many many of these movies. Well, more than that, you can go to Southeast Asia, for example, and there's a whole sub industry of tourism. In Vietnam, it's called Indochine. Oh, no. And you can go to, say, Dalat, the old French hill station outside of Saigon, and they've refurbished the old colonial hotel. Or there's restaurants in, um, and hotels in uh, Phnom Penh and in, um, in Ho Chi Minh City, Saigon, and Hanoi that recreate that atmosphere of colonialism. You see this to a lesser degree in Indonesia as well. And it really is this uh, tourism designed to create colonial nostalgia. Wow. And again, they, they, they call it endochic. Wow. And there's a chain of restaurants in the United States called Le Colonial. And there's a lovely restaurant oh in God. San Francisco. Wow. I walk into that restaurant, and it's like walking into my research. Some of the images on the wall, these reproduced images, are some of the postcards that I've examined. Not the beheadings. Not the beheadings. No, that, <laughs> yeah, that would probably spoil someone's appetite. <laughs> Well, that might be for another uh, another business in San Francisco. <laughs> but, but, you know, most of the, that romantic uh, storytelling that I was talking about was about English colonialism, simply because yeah. maybe because we're an English-speaking country. Those are the movies we watch. Did the French have that, too? Did they have a bunch of romantic uh, movies and books about oh, the life? Of absolutely. The, yeah. Absolutely. There's a whole body of literature uh, on colonialism that really is um, exoticism and, and Orientalism. Mm. No. For Americans to think about the romanticism and the nostalgia of colonialism, I think the best analogy would be the romanticism and the uh, nostalgia for the Old South. Antebellum South. Antebellum South. I mean, it is, it's the same thing. A, a life of leisure and comfort for the white class based upon slave labor. I'm not running into too much of that nostalgia in, <laughs> in my circles. Where are you finding this? Well, I mean, the, but the images of, you know, Scarlett O'Hara and a, this comfortable oh, There is that movie. So there forth. is that movie, yes. And, and the reality is that that's, that is not the majority of white Southerners. Mm-hmm. I mean, they did not enjoy mm-hmm. that lifestyle. But as the image of, of, of leisure. Yeah. And I think that like the comparison of lynchings 
and postcards of lynchings to colonial executions and postcards of that. There there are some very clear parallels between the experience of colonialism in the tropical world and the experience of slavery in the American South. Um, well, you spent a lot of your career studying the follies of colonialism, mm-hmm. the, the great rat massacre that backfired, grotesque postcards of public executions in Hanoi by the French colonials, the testing of vaccines on the population, other, you know, terrible things, right? Mm-hmm. Do you, though, ever experience just a little bit of romantic engagement with sort of a dark side, you know, a kind of film noir version of colonial of the colonial world? I mean, investigating these murders and these back alleys and things like that. Does that ever kind of get you going in a very non- scholarly way yeah, yeah no i'm, I'm going to have to plead guilty to that one i mean the when i discovered the uh the dossier on the 1929 murder of bazan the the labor recruiter for michelin i i you know i described this as a cinematic murder i mean it was mm-hmm. like this was designed um not for a scholarly article but really for for the silver screen i and, could, I yeah, could it's, tell it's man. fascinating and um you know, there's a there's a wonderful French film. I, I I love it. I absolutely love it. Called Pepe Le Moco. Came out in the ah, 1930s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, starring Gabin. Yeah, and Jean it, Gabin. it's set in the Casbah of Algiers. That's right. And it's it's totally colonial. I mean, it is so obnoxious. It's so racist, <laughs> but it is a delightful piece of cinema, and it is an incredible fantasy, and you know, The Heart of Darkness, a great piece of literature, uh, Passage to India. I mean, there there is a culture that came out of colonialism that is that is an important part of the world's literary tradition. Well, those were critiques of critiques, colonialism. Critiques, yeah. um, absolutely. But part of this larger body that it's ex- exploring colonialism. Mm-hmm. And I think it's important to read the critiques along with um, the celebrations and the nostalgia to get uh, a true sense of what's going on in the empire in that moment of colonialism. Well, everything we've talked about with regard to your work mm. was focused on Vietnam and actually Hanoi specifically. Mm-hmm. But I understand you're off to Indonesia soon. Yeah, I'll be leaving. Um... Why? That was where you <laughs> decided not to specialize because of the uh, forbidding Dutch language. <laughs> Dutch language. Why, why are you going to Indonesia? Which, I, which I've since been assured is the easiest language for an English speaker to learn. Is that right? That's what everyone's telling me now. You've been uh, working on your late. throat muscles? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love those double vowels. Um, I'm, uh, I have a Fulbright grant uh, to be a, a senior scholar teaching world history at uh, Universitas Gajamada, which is Indonesia's premier university in the city of Yogyakarta, which is a city in central Java with a very long royal and spiritual tradition. In many ways, it's the cultural center of of java i'll be teaching world history there um they would really like me to be teaching american history mm. <laughs> being an american but um the, my project is to create a world history curriculum for the 21st century Indo- indonesian university student just as american students uh regardless of their major business school uh whatever should have a firm grounding in world history to understand the world they're operating in the same thing for um uh, Southeast Asian, Indonesian students. You're, you're going to come back here, aren't you? Oh, absolutely. Well, I look forward to some more stories when you get back. Okay, thank you so much. Mike Van teaches history at Sacramento State University. This has been the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. I will be back next week. And you can always listen to past shows and learn more at our website, 7thAvenueProject.com. We had a big plantation. We had servants, a smashing view of the jungle. These things belong to us. But we had to leave the beautiful country that we own. It's so disgraceful, an affront to our dignity. Another old colonial comes with a hard luck story. Another old colonial comes with a hard luck story. Another.